0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week I am joining you from Paris where people are absolutely obsessed with a new yellow peril, not the idea of uh, the Chinese threat, which was first uh, evoked by the by the Russians and by Kaiser Wilhelm and then took on a life of its own in America in the 19th century. But the peril of Gilets Jaunes, who are taking over roundabouts all over the country and bringing it into a political crisis of uh, depth and intensity that has not been known for, for many years. And to help us make sense of that phenomenon and to put it into a wider political context, I have three amazing guests. Um, First up is Simon Cooper, who is a columnist at the Financial Times, has been based in Paris for 17 years and has been writing a lot about populism, um, as well as some of the ruptures and ruptures that have been taking place in French society for a number of years now. Um, Also, sitting next to me here in the ECFR office in Paris, we have uh, Tara Varma, who is the deputy head of the Paris office, um, who has just written about the Gilets Jaunes for our website. We'll put a link to our article uh, up as well. And returning to the podcast is Manuel leffon who's the the head of our office and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. So why don't we start with this extraordinary week? It was a week where the violence of the Gilets Jaunes has reached new heights. Uh, But it's also the week where Emmanuel Macron's big response to this violence has come to a a culmination. He uh, launched a series of Le Grand Débat, the Great National Debate was his way of trying to seize back control of the political agenda after the crisis of the Gilets Jaunes and this it had 10,000 debates all over the country but it came to a rather spectacular conclusion with a debate with 63 intellectuals in the Elysée which lasted 8 hours and 20 minutes and, and ended at 2.30 in the morning. Um, Tara since you've been writing about the Gilets jaunes why don't you um, why don't you kick us off and tell us what's happening in, to your country
1: I think we should start uh, with the election of Emmanuel Macron which quite transformed the political landscape in France uh, he has um, really become the embodiment of power previous presidents were too but he, I feel like he he made a special point he was you know he declared his candidacy uh, only nine months before the election. Nobody believed he could do it and he actually managed to and it was quite a a political masterpiece I found. Not only was he elected, but he even managed to get a majority in the National Assembly. Um, His government from the start was quite a technical government. He decided to take on people who were not so much political figures, but uh, who could help him get some political weight across uh, the political spectrum. And so that led him to actually be, uh, again, the embodiment of power, but also the embodiment of the dysfunctionalities of the French political system. And uh, he has vowed to change France, to change its political, economic and social system. And so when people got frustrated because they felt maybe that uh, reforms were not uh coming up fast enough and their lives were not changing fast enough he also became the target of their frustration and their anger and so one of the things that is really noticeable uh, in the gilets jaunes demonstrations is that uh, most of of the recriminations are against him it's not just about the government but it's really now it's become also against the home affairs ministers Uh, but it's it's all about macron and what macron can do and it's quite fascinating to see that not only are the recriminations against him, but basically his answer uh to this whole situation is also a very personal answer. He is the one who launched the grand national debate. He went into into town halls, he went into the countryside, but it was it was about him. His ministers had to do it as well. But most of what we talk about is the anger against him and how he is trying uh to make up for it and and it's not going very well unfortunately uh, last saturday the level of violence uh, rose again really highly the champs were quite uh, destroyed and people are are a bit wary of what will happen in two days time because there'll be another act of the gilets jaunes and we have no idea whether uh, the government is going to give maybe a military response uh, to the casser to the demonstrators and what also that would mean for for democracy in France, I think.
0: So Manuel, we've been talking over the last few days to some French intellectuals, some of whom were invited to this debate in the Elysée. Um, but what they seem to be saying is exactly what Tara said, that, that the big word which Macron came to embody was this idea of the dégagisme, in other words, just kicking the radicals out. And he, in fact, said you can't reform France, only a revolution um, is, is the way to change France. Um, but now rather than being seen as the embodiment of, of digagisme from from above he is the victim of digagisme from below i mean how do you see his response what do you think uh, we should take from this weird french uh, response to populism shutting yourself in a bunker with 63 intellectuals for 8 hours
2: So, exactly. You have this uh, uh, moment when uh, Macron benefited from the disintermediation of politics, the crisis of political parties, the crisis in France, at least of trade unions, etc. And so, something new uh, uh, with little track record, etc., was seen very positively by uh, voters, uh, at least a a big section of, uh, of voters. Uh, But now he's suffering of this uh, this disintermediation because it's one of the interesting uh, aspects of this uh, uh, Gilets Jaunes uh, movement that uh, they make a point of not being organized, of not having spokesperson, and they started with actually uh, quite specific uh, reasons and motives for the demonstrations. Sarah said uh, that reforms are not going uh, fast enough, seen by uh, some people in France. You could also argue that the Gilets jaunes was a reaction to uh, some reforms going too fast uh or not being fair enough uh because uh, the, the, it started with uh the, the uh, um with the question of uh, ecology and tr- uh, ecologic transition toward decarbonated uh, economy and how you tax uh, uh gas oil for um oil for uh, um, cars and, and uh, transportation and that's what started it but actually Macron gave a few uh answers, uh, which are quite significant uh, budget-wise. 12 billion euros. Uh, and yet the movement is still going on, and the movement is not going on with very specific recommendation other than uh, we want to kick them out. Uh, and so this disintermediation uh, of politics that he benefited from uh, now is uh, suffering from, and the, I, I would tend to see that it's a very uh, a French-specific way uh, of a phenomenon that exists uh, in many other uh, democracies
0: okay I, i'd like to come back to the Elysee thing maybe a bit later but before that simon um you've been here for 17 years but you've also you know lived in the netherlands which is another country which has had an interesting and disruptive politics over uh, a long period of time and how, how much of what's going on do you think is is franco-francais and how much of it is uh, uh, part of a kind of wider phenomenon that's taking place across the, the developed industrialised world?
3: I think the particularly Franco-Francais aspects of the Gilets jaunes is the concern about spending power, because France is a country of low incomes compared to other Western European countries and high taxes. So even if you pay the minimum wage, even if you earn the minimum wage, you're paying a significant chunk in taxes. And so... You know, a lot of French life is taken care of. People don't have to worry, typically, about paying for education, and paying for health, about receiving unemployment benefit. But people are left with very little money. So most French net incomes cluster at around 1200 €1,400 Euros a month net. And so this enormous anxiety about reaching the end of the month with your money, I think, is more prominent than in um, Northern Europe, uh, even more than in the UK or in the UK, that phenomenon exists, but it's less widespread. In France, it's very widespread. And that was the key focus of uh, the gilets jaunes demands. I agree with Manuel that the desire for direct democracy, which we've seen in the last few years, which Brexit was also about, this impatience with your representatives. Why do we have representatives in an era when you can, on the internet, immediately show your political opinion? And um, people are used to voting in reality TV, for example, and they can't understand why they need Um, an MP in Paris or in London to do that for them. So in that sense, the gilets jaunes is uh, something we've seen in other countries. And I think gilets jaunes might be the next step because, you know, first Trump and then the Brexiteers said, uh, you are the people, we will represent you. And now the gilets jaunes are saying, we are the people, we don't need to be represented. So you might start seeing something more amorphous like this elsewhere too. interesting um earlier today i I was talking to a french
0: intellectual and he was saying that you know the gilets jaunes are kind of impossible object because you know they don't have leaders they don't have delegates they're not making demands because they don't have the political structure of a a party it's their political structure is that of an urban riot how can you deal with it and another one was talking about how how the nature of politics has changed it used to be solid um where you had kind of loyal supporters of political parties then it went for a kind of liquid phase where people were sloshing about but you basically still had a bit of structure and now it's become this kind of unstable gaseous um state where um there's nothing to hang on to and that does seem to be the kind of sentiment amongst french elites at the moment simon you just written this column about the different kind of populist methods i mean you were maybe you could talk us through that how does how do they fit into this kind of new gaseous um uh, political system that we're in
3: well people are unhappy and they are easily led to politically this, this sounds patronizing they're easily led politically because most people are increasingly not following politics because in if you go back 30 years ago you turn on the news you turn on tv there are only a few channels and pretty soon you were confronted with news and you were confronted with a politician on a talk show and you bought your newspaper maybe to find out the football results or to find out the weather or the TV guide, but there was politics in it. Now, most people have never been very interested in politics and they can totally avoid it because if you want to read about golf, you never need to read a newspaper. You just go on golf websites or video games websites, which a lot of people do. So there's an enormous um, detachment from the political process, lack of knowledge about what goes on and politics needs to entertain us to reach those people because there's people like us here at the table we're obsessed with politics we'll follow it anyway we're a tiny minority to reach people who are on the golf channel you need to be fun and that's what trump realized brilliantly that uh, politics has become a really second-rate reality show with really unappealing characters that nobody was interested in like hillary clinton and if you're a reality star like he was you could clean up you could get the engagement of people who never normally engage in politics so engagement is a part of it And the way you get engaged is A being fun and B creating fear because um, the best political story is you are in danger, but I will protect you. You could be killed by uh, Mexicans coming through the border or by Syrian refugees, but I will protect you. And so uh, the fear story is important and then identifying the enemy. Um, Much more important, I'm channeling the great populist strategist, Arthur Finkelstein, now dead, that he represented everyone from Nixon to Netanyahu to Orban, uh, Finkelstein said, even if you're already born in Canada, he named Aldo Amato in New York, who he'd worked for. It doesn't matter. What matters is the enemy. And so, obviously, Syrian refugees are a great enemy. Mexican rapists, but also Hillary Clinton, because she embodies the financial, economic, uh, educational, and political elite. Uh, George Soros, great enemy. Soros wasn't present in any in politics, but Alban had to kind of invent him. Once you have an enemy, you have a political campaign. So these are some of the populist methods that I think we're struggling to understand. We're only getting there now. Uh, Last one I'll quickly mention is social media. So normally in politics, the party gets together, it's a lot of old people, they sit in a room, and they work out out a platform. And uh, the the populists don't do it like that. You put something out on social media, and if it gets a lot of retweets, then that becomes your platform. So if you start shouting, build the wall, and suddenly on social media everyone's tweeting, build the wall, that's great, you go with it. If you try something and nobody's interested, you drop it. So you're very kind of reflexive in, in your platform,
0: but how does that sort of politics, which is very much a kind of top down, is about you know using Twitter and Facebook to broadcast messages, differ from what's happening in in France, Daha, where you've got no, um, you know, you have Macron in a way who's used some of the populist methods, which um, which Simon's been describing. But the Gilets Jaunes, in a way, is the sort of anti Macron because there is nothing at the centre of it. One of these intellectuals is saying, you don't even know, you're talking to any, you know, Gilet Gilets Jaunes is to anybody who wears a gilet jaune, but you don't know who they are, what they represent, whether they have any real influence, or whether it's just someone who's wearing a gilet jaune for the day.
1: I think that is what is terrifying, and that uh, is what intellectuals and politicians are also trying to figure out. Um, From one area of France to another, it's uh, different claims, different preoccupations, even though uh, cost of living and unemployment are clearly uh, among the central issues. But some of them could be labeled as populist, some of them would be more conservative, others would be more uh, on the far left. Uh, It's a bit uh, fascinating and and terrifying not really to be able to label them uh, totally, and that is why I think when Macron transformed totally the political landscape, it also led to that. And these people also, that's true, uh, what Simon said, they don't want to be represented because they feel that when they are, they are misrepresented. And people who've been in power have actually uh, led them to believe things that they didn't realize that they didn't put into place. Uh, and we've come to a level of, of anger against politicians generally that I don't think we'll be able to mitigate anytime soon. And so. I have a, it feels like there is no clear answer. We, people are expecting and, and wary of what will happen on Saturday, but we don't know what the long term answer is to that. Uh, Macron at some point hoped that the grand debate would calm things down, and it did for a while, but last week showed that it can start again, and, and it's the, the most violent part that still starts, even though. Uh, I should say that um, on on quite a few roundabouts still in France, there are women and men who are still gathering uh, peacefully, uh, but who are still asking for politicians to to take their um, preoccupations into consideration and that is not really done.
0: And what is the consequence of this for, say, the European elections or for, for French politics in the future? I don't know if any of you want to.
2: Well, just to, to uh, follow on what uh, Tara was saying and what you were saying in terms of uh, this comparison between uh, the Gilets Jaunes and the urban riots. Uh, with, precisely, how you deal with urban riots is not just through police, but you try to boil it down to reinvendications and uh, interlocutors that then you can uh, engage with and, and transform that violence into something uh, different. Uh, so it will be interesting to see if the kind of uh, higher profile given to uh, police and repressive responses by the government since Saturday uh, is going to be the only aspects of what the government uh, will do or if they are going to try something else. That's even more important in the French system um, given the fact that the, one of the very striking things is that this movement uh, is now uh, quite old, uh, managed to last and it managed to keep high support in the, opi- in the public opinion. Uh, not everybody demonstrates, and uh, of course, not everybody uh, goes to demonstration to uh, uh, break uh, shops and uh, and uh, public buildings, etc., etc. And yet, uh, there is quite significant uh, support among the public, which probably says something indeed about uh, frustration and mistrust uh, with the uh, government. So, uh, in terms of the impact on the, on the campaign. I think Macron uh, did uh, campaign for the presidential election, putting forward very much his idea of protection, which is uh, his own version of what uh, Simon said. I I think that's uh, pretty different from the way uh, Trump framed it and used it, but it's exactly uh, the same reasoning, that you need to uh, show people that you recognize that they have fears and that you're going to try to build something positive uh, on that. And so you have all uh, uh, this very important uh, angle for Macron, which is about uh, um, the right way to protect you further and better, more effectively, more responsibly, is through Europe. And you have all, for, for Macron, it's really important because what unifies its very diverse uh, group of voters precisely is the fact that they believe in Europe. Not everybody approves of the current way Europe works Uh, and even uh, quite a number of them are actually quite critical, but they still believe that precisely uh, defending and... and, and, uh, Defending Europe doesn't mean defending the status quo, but uh, the problem now is that Macron has been in power for uh, almost two years, so he owns uh, some of of what is happening or is not happening, um, and he has to um, try to... um, Give more credibility to the fact that he is going to be able to get out of the status quo, and I think that's what he did with the op-ed that he wrote and was published uh, across Europe. That's that's the first uh, sign of the fact that he's going to go uh, down that road.
0: So, um, Simon, you, what do you make of, uh, of the way that Macron's responded to this through his Grand débat, through the his this meeting with the intellectuals, the different ways of trying to engage with the European agenda?
3: Macron reminds me of Tony Blair at times, he probably reminds everyone of Blair at times, uh, partly in that he likes uh, talking to people and listening a bit and then trying to persuade them. He's very confident like Blair in his persuasive powers and um, he likes these one-on-one debates. So Trump isn't like that, for example. Trump likes speaking at people. Theresa May doesn't like engaging with people at all. So I think Macron is, is pretty good in this way. And uh, through the Grand Bar you saw his uh, approval ratings continue to rise. Macron's Europe bet, I think, is different and it's failed. He made this bet when he took power that he could relaunch the Franco-German partnership, that he could uh, help integrate Europe further, uh, especially the Eurozone. Europe would deal with the big issues uh, like climate change under Franco-German leadership. And it turns out nobody, not even the Germans, want this. Uh, everybody except Macron wants less Europe. And so he pushed and pushed against this door and it hasn't opened. And I think most French voters don't particularly care. It's not an issue that people are going to vote on, but it is a failure for him. Do you two agree? I I don't think people don't care. I'm
2: I'm not sure that what Macron puts forward, uh, everybody makes a link with the kind of day-to-day priorities that people have. And that's part of the challenge for Macron, to show that... What he is trying to do matters for the more uh, uh, day-to-day concerns that people have when they talk about purchasing power uh, uh, or uh, security or migration, etc. But um, I, I think that if you look at the way the opposition is going to uh, attack Macron, precisely they are going to attack him on... Is is European strategy uh, working or not? They are not going to say we don't care about Europe, uh, etc. You have you have this strange moment where um, parties which used to be Eurosceptics to the point of being very critical of participating to the Euro or even participating to the EU uh, have uh, now uh, a much more uh, pragmatic approach, but they still uh, um, precisely they play into a European framework, rather than uh, only on a uh, "let's take back control" kind of very nationalistic rhetoric that you had in Brexit. So I'm not sure that Europe is totally out of the uh, universe of voters when they think about what matters for them. They just, and and that's Macron himself has been saying that. They just find it hard to make connections between what Brussels does and what the government says it does in Brussels and what they really care about at the end of the day uh, and, and for the next day and not just for the next uh, 10 years or 20 years.
0: So um, how do you see it? Do you get this pro-Europeanism in one country um, that Simon was describing? Is that Why does Macron keep returning to the idea of a European renaissance? Why does he keep pushing it if um, he is sort of flocking a dead horse and if no one wants to work with him or, or follow France?
1: Because I think it's not just about Macron or France, it's precisely about the European project. I think Macron is uh, very conscious of the new geopolitical order that we are in. Uh, I think he truly believes that Europe needs to find the tools to defend itself and to defend its citizens, that uh, it's not going to get better for us. Uh, and so I think he does believe in the European power, but then. He also has to cope uh, with the desire of other European citizens, his citizens as well. Most studies show that actually people do want Europe, but they want Europe at a bigger level. They don't want it in the granularity of their daily lives because they feel that Europe has taken quite a lot from them. But they do want Europe to defend themselves. They do believe that climate change should be resolved at least at the European level, if not at the global level. And so there is this idea that people don't want to leave Europe. So maybe he needs to exploit this more um, and to show that he can He can get other European countries to co- cooperate with France. He started doing that um, ever since he got elected. So he's uh, traveling to countries, Nordic countries, for instance, where a French president hadn't been in 20 to 25 years. He's trying to shape up more bilateral relations in, in addition to uh, his ministers going to Brussels and to the council, of course. But I feel like he's... Uh, there has been a, a multiplicator effect of, of everything that he's done. It has not panned out uh, as he wanted, as quickly as he wanted, but I don't think... I think people do feel that he's pro-European and I don't think they, they're angry at him for that. There are other reasons, but not that at least.
0: So maybe um, we can bring this discussion to close with this with, going with the, this debate, this rather extraordinary debate in the Elysée, um, so he'd invited 63 intellectuals to, to come along. And apparently, asked them all to uh, to to make a point or ask him a question, and then he went round the room and answered every single one of them individually. Which is why it lasted eight hours. Eight hours and twenty minutes, Um, and apparently they were sort of structured into little different camps: the philosophers, the economists, and other different groups. they talked about everything from Islam and climate change to inheritance tax, the state of, of French uh, psychology, um, European border control, but maybe you can end by imagining that you were, you were there. If you were um, invited to this thing what would, and you had one point that you could make to Macron, what would it have been, Simon?
3: Uh, I would say you're probably going to win the next elections, so let's not panic Remember at the beginning you were talking about you were judging five years and it's very hard to keep that in mind all through. But there is no crisis. It feels like a crisis, but um, this is okay. What about you,
0: Taha?
1: Well, unsurprisingly, (laughs) I'm going to make a point about women's rights. Um, In many of the reports uh, that we've seen in the press about the gilets jaunes, uh, there are women who are there actually. uh, The least violent are women. Uh, But they're still there and they've been there for five months and they say that they are not managing with minimum wage, they're not managing uh, with the benefits that they get.
2: Single moms in particular.
1: Single moms in particular. He has said that uh, equality between women and men was going to be the great cause uh, of his mandate and I think we're still expecting to see how that is going to pan out.
0: Manuel, what's what's your wise words for Macron? So
2: knowing that Tara <laughs> is there and is raising that point, uh, then I think I would I would hesitate between two things. What, the first one is about disintermediation uh, of politics, and Macron himself said that precisely he wouldn't be there if those uh, uh, intermediate bodies, uh, les corps intermédiaires, as we say in French, uh, would have uh, uh, been uh, effective. But I I failed to see if in his mind that means that precisely we need to get rid of these because they wouldn't work anywhere or if there is on the contrary a need to put some of these mechanisms back into place that work better uh, and and how his politics and his policies are contributing to reinstigating this kind of uh, of intermediation I, I, it's it's not clear to me The other thing is that he came to power and That generated a a, a real significant amount of uh, international political capital, diplomatic uh, political capital. Clearly, uh, the the Gilets Jaunes has damaged that and puts him, it's not just that uh, uh, he's pro European uh, only in in one country and the rest of Europe is not so responsive. I think uh, some Europeans are responsive on some issues. Uh, It's clearly uh, much less than what he hoped for, and what uh, he uh, has the ambitions for, and, and ideas and proposals for. But how how is he going to manage with this kind of uh, damage done to his credibility um, at the domestic level? How
0: is he going to manage with that on the European and uh, international level? Okay. Well, that's been a very interesting discussion. Um, No one's wearing a gilet jaune yet. So um, thanks for not intermediating the podcast, disintermediating the podcast. Um, We have one thing left to do before we end the podcast, which I should have warned you about, Simon, at the beginning. So I'll come to you last, but it's our bookshelf segment. Um, Manuel, what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
2: I (laughs) fail to remember the title of the book, but it's by Pascal Brice, who had the OFPRA, the French Asylum Agency, uh, for the last six years, so he started before the refugee crisis uh, started. Uh, he wanted to go for another three years. Uh, the Home Affairs Ministry opposed that, so now he's uh, not head of the OFPRA anymore. So he wrote a book about that experience and it's very interesting precisely on how uh, uh, you know you have this say about uh, you don't want to know how the sausage is made uh, when you look at policy making. So it's a, also a book about how to try to do policymaking on those issues, uh, less disgusting. Uh, and I think it's, it's very, very uh, interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll put the name of the book on the, on the website. What about you, Taha?
1: Uh, I've just finished Arceler EES, so that translates into women who are harassed. Uh, it's an investigative report uh, based on 72 interviews of women across France. Uh, who have faced violence uh, that spans from sexual and moral harassment up to domestic violence.
3: What about you, Simon? I'm reading uh, Fintan O'Toole's book on Brexit Ah. and of cultural background to it, which is wonderful.
0: Okay, I got a couple of um, recommendations. One is um, on our French theme, there's a French uh, political geographer called uh, Christophe uh, Guilly, who uh, has written lots of books about La France périphérique and other issues, but one of them has just been translated into English and is called The Twilight of the Elites and is a kind of fascinating account of how France became this very polarised, fragmented society that we've been describing at the moment. Uh, but while we're on the topic, i also like to do some promotion for some ECFR um, uh, materials. We have a massive project trying to understand the political dynamics in Europe at the moment, which we call our Unlock Project. So we're doing polling in 14 different member states, but we've done a series of interesting publications already on it. Um, Susie Dennison and Pavel Zerka wrote a very interesting mapping exercise of the about the European elections. Ivan Krastev has just written a very interesting op-ed which uses some of our data Um, There's also this piece by Tara, which um, I mentioned earlier. So we'll put a link up to our Unlock page, which will give you access to all of those things. And finally, Simon wrote this very interesting um, column in the FT about the populist method. So I will uh, put a link up to that as well. Thank you very much for talking to me. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do make sure that you let your friends and acquaintances know about it by tweeting about it, writing about it on your social media page or on ours. But above all, by heading to whatever platform you've used to listen to this podcast on and giving us a rating and a review. But for now, from Simon Cooper, Tara Varma, and Manuel lefoy as well as myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The... Editor of ECF Post Podcast is Katarina Botel Azzinaro.